you are familiar with the singer-songwriter Harry Chapin. You maybe know his song, Cats in the Cradle. He has another song, even if you're not familiar, a song called Flowers Are Red. Flowers Are Red is a song that tells a story of a little boy. The little boy goes to school and his teacher invites him to color pictures of a flower. And so he starts drawing and he uses all kinds of color and the flowers are all different colors and the leaves are many different colors. And the teacher comes to him and says, no, no, no. You don't understand. Flowers are red and leaves are green. And he continues to color the different colors and she keeps telling him, no, flowers are red and leaves are green. And so eventually after a while, he begins to color and all of his flowers are red and all of the leaves are green. And eventually he goes and he has a new teacher and the new teacher invites the class to color flowers and he sits down and he dutifully colors red flowers and green leaves. And the teacher looks at him and says, well, why? But there are so many colors, so many different wonderful colors that you could use. And he responds to her, flowers are red and leaves are green. You might think, well, what does this have to do with anything? Particularly the scripture. Well, Beverly Roberts Gaventa, New Testament scholar, uses this song and this story as an illustration as she begins her exploration of Romans chapter 9 through 11, which we're going to start today. And she uses it as a picture to point out how we become what we are taught. And how sometimes we come to the Bible with a lot of questions because we are told those are the questions we should be asking. Instead of simply coming and allowing the scripture to speak to us. And Romans 9 through 11 is a notoriously difficult part. There's a lot of twists and turns and a lot that goes on. And there are lots of questions, but some of those questions aren't necessarily part of what Paul was trying to answer. And so like the little boy who had been told flowers are red, leaves are green, we're told that there are certain questions that we should be asking about this, certain things we should find in this. But what I want us to see over the next three weeks is maybe those aren't the questions that Paul was trying to answer. That maybe Paul had something else to teach us, and so that maybe we need to unlearn what we've been taught and relearn a new way of looking at it. And so, as I said, we're starting into Romans chapter 9. We're in the midst of this extended series on Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul was this early follower of Jesus who planted churches and led many of them. And Rome is one of those churches, not that he had started, but that he was addressing. He had sent a letter to them. We call it the letter to the Romans. And it's this letter, and it introduces himself. It tells about what he understands the gospel to be, this work of God at work in the world. It's also a way that he's dealing with some potential issues going on in the church in Rome. And it seems, especially as we read at the end of the, the letter, that there are things going on that there are two groups in the church. There's the weak and there's the strong. It has nothing to do with physical strength, but there's this group called the weak, which most likely seem to be Jewish believers. And these Jewish believers, they want to follow the Torah. They want to follow the laws. They believe you should be part of synagogue. And they kind of look down with disdain on the group called the strong. And now the strong, they're most likely Gentiles. In other words, non-Jewish believers. And one of the things they understand is they've got a little bit more freedom. And so they kind of look down a little bit on the weak. And so they've got these two different groups that look down on each other. And part of Paul's goal in writing this letter is pastoral. He's not simply producing a theology text. And sometimes we read the book of Romans, this letter to the Romans, as Paul's theology. 
And it's like a systematic theology, and he's laying out for us all of what God is about and what God does in Jesus. But we have to remember, Paul wrote the letter, and part of it was his pastoral concern for this church that was divided and going through these hard times. And so he's been going along, and he's been teaching, and I want us to imagine ourselves maybe as one of these Jewish listeners sitting there. And we're hearing, and we've been grown up, and we've been told the stories of God. We've been told the stories of how God chose a people, a unique people called Israel. They chose Abraham and down through the descendants of Abraham. And these people had a special purpose in all of God's plan. And their special purpose was to be a light to the world. They were the chosen ones of God. And then this man named Paul, who was a Jew himself, who had grown up in this, comes along and he presents this thing. And as he writes this letter, and if we were to go back to the beginning of the letter to the Romans, we'd be reading through it. We hear that Paul says, well, this is a gospel, but it's first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. We might be thinking, wait a minute, for the Gentiles too? But, but aren't the Jews God's elect? And then maybe he goes on and he gets into chapter 2 and he starts talking about those who keep the law. And maybe he starts putting them down a little bit and all these, we as the Jewish people, the keepers of the law are wondering, well, wait a minute. We say we keep the law, but we're showing something else to the people. And then he goes on and he suggests that maybe circumcision isn't everything that it's meant to be. And you're starting to hear this as a Jewish reader and you're thinking, well, wait a minute. But that was the special mark of being God's people. And then Paul goes even farther. He says, righteousness comes apart from the law. And that the law, this thing, this special thing that set us apart, this thing that God had given to our people at Mount Sinai, it caused an increase in sin. And so you might start to wonder there as you're listening to this, because that's how it would have happened. Maybe Phoebe, maybe somebody else is reading this letter, presenting it, performing it for this congregation there in Rome. And you're sitting there and you as the Jewish believer sitting next to these Gentiles and you're hearing this and you're starting to wonder. And as you're hearing it all, you're starting to question and you're saying, wait a minute, God made all these promises to us that we were his elect people and all these things were going to be happening. But I see a lot of my fellow, believer, my fellow Jews who aren't following Jesus. Not only that, it seems like all these things that God had told us about, I'm wondering, has God turned his back on his promises? Because if God turned his back on his promises to Israel, then why should we believe he's going to be faithful to anything else? And so that, I think, is what Paul is getting at in Romans 9 through 11. He's getting at God's promises, His faithfulness, but also God's mercy. And that this mercy should lead to this unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And if we see this big picture of the weak and the strong, and wanting the weak to see God's faithfulness and surprises and see how they're linked together. And one of the reasons I think along with many others, that Romans 9 through 11 is addressed to the Jewish people in particular in the congregation. Is just if you heard Teresa as she was reading it there, there was a whole lot of assumption that you knew the stories of the Old Testament. I mean, it starts off and it talks about the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the temple worship, the promises. That's a whole lot of Old Testament stuff. And then it starts talking about Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and Sarah and Rebekah and Pharaoh and Moses. 
And if you've never read the Old Testament or aren't, or aren't steeped in it, you might say, who are all these people? Why are we talking about all this? And Paul doesn't stop along the way and explain. He doesn't put in the explanatory comma and say, well, wait a minute. Now, when I'm talking about Rebecca, here's the story. We're going to do a little bit of that. But we don't get all that. So I think Paul is writing in this portion of the letter primarily to these Jewish people, and he's wanting them to understand what's going on. And he begins, and if you've got your Bible, I invite you to kind of follow along. I'm going to put some of the verses on the screen, but we're going through a lot here in Romans 9. But he begins with this concern that Paul has. Now, Paul, again, is Jewish. He grew up learning the Scripture. He was a teacher of these things. And he begins by saying that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why? Because he's looking around at his fellow Jewish people, these people who have been called by God, the ones who are God's chosen people, and he sees that many, many of them are not following Jesus. And it hurts him just as it hurts us. And I know it's true for many of you who have family, who have friends, who have people you know well who are not following Jesus. And you're wondering, and there's this pain going on inside of you. And he says, for I wish that I myself were cursed. I were anathema and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. That's how much Paul loves his people, that he's willing to die for them. Where did he get that idea? Well, from Jesus. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus. And not only that, I think not only from Jesus, but he also thinks back to one of the stories that he heard growing up and that he taught was the story of Moses. Because Moses was the leader of God's people when they had been in slavery in Egypt. They come out of slavery in Egypt and then they get into all kinds of mess. And at one point, God says, I'm done with these people. This is at Mount Sinai, the place where they've been given the law. And while they're up there and God is giving them this law that's going to set them apart, they're down there worshiping a golden calf. And so Moses goes to God and says, God, don't, don't hurt the people. Take me instead. And so this is not something new. So Paul's saying that. So he says, put the curses on me. Let it be on me. And he reminds them of this is all that you've been given to them. The adoption to sonship. That's the story of God making them as children. The divine glory that God gave them. The covenants. The covenants to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. All these stories of the Old Testament. Covenant, which means a promise given to them. The receiving of the law. This time where God had given them all these rules. The temple worship and the promises. All these things that are going on. Theirs are the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from them is traced the ancestry of the Messiah. He's reminding them, the Messiah Jesus that we're talking about is a descendant from Abraham. And comes down through it. These people of God, the Jewish people, you've given them all of this. And his heart is breaking when he sees the way that they're not following. And he's willing to give everything up for them. And so the question in the back of their mind then is, has God's word failed? And he gets to this in verse 6. He says, it is not as though God's word had failed. And then he says something really strange. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And this is where we get into the kind of strange thing. So, not all Israel are Israel. You think, well, is Paul making things up here? Is it what kind of language? 
And I think one of the things that we want to pay attention to, and he's going to explain it using stories from the Old Testament, is that part of his focus, his focus is on God and God's creative power and choices and the unexpected choices that God makes. And he, what he does is he contrasts the physical descent, the children of the promise with children of the flesh. And so he tells these stories. And so he has two stories he tells. He tells the story of Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham and Sarah were these two, this couple, and they were getting in their old age, and God comes to Abraham and says, through you I am going to create a great nation, whose children will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sands on the shore, and I'm going to bless the world through you. Now Abraham at this point is really old, and he and his wife Sarah have no children, and so they're kind of wondering how this is going to happen. And God makes this promise and some time goes by and it doesn't seem to be, nothing seems to be happening. So Abraham and Sarah kind of take things in their own hand and through a handmaiden, they have another child, Ishmael. Not through Abraham and Sarah, but through, and so this other child is born. But God comes back and says, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it through Isaac. And that's what he's talking about where he says, for this was how the promise was stated at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And so there's this unexpected turn that goes on because in that world, the firstborn son was the one who would be the one through whom everything would flow. And Ishmael was the firstborn son. Wasn't with Sarah, but it didn't matter because in that culture, it was patrilineal, which meant it went through the father. So the father's first son was Ishmael. And God comes in and says, no, no, no. I had a promise to you and that promise was that it would be through yours and Sarah's son. So in other words, what matters not is what the world and how you conceive of things. What doesn't matter, your plans and the way you work things out. What matters is my promise, not the spirit, the descent through the flesh. Because you could say, well, but it was Ishmael. It was down through his descendants. And God says, no. I'm turning things around. I'm working against the pattern here. I'm going, doing it through Isaac or through Isaiah. And then he goes on to Rebecca, and Rebecca is the one who's married to Isaiah, and so by with who's married to Isaac. And the same thing happens. She has twins, and the oldest one is Esau. And once again, what do we just learn? That descent and inheritance and everything comes through the oldest son. And again, God flips things around, and it doesn't come through. Esau, but through Jacob. He says, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. In other words, it's not by the things we do, not by the plans we make, but it's by the one who calls, by the one who creates. And so what Paul is setting up here is saying, God has a way of doing things. And what he's saying is that this arbitrary choice or what seems arbitrary choice is, un, is emphasized. And so why is, he making, why is he making all this point? Why is he going through and saying, well, people would have thought it would have been Ishmael, but it's Isaac. People would have thought it would have been Esau, but it's Jacob. Because he's talking to Jewish people who are thinking, wait a minute, our nationality, our descent is what sets it apart. And what Paul is getting at is like, no, 
God works in mysterious ways. God flips things around. God does things differently. And not only that, what God wants to get to, or what Paul wants to get to is the Gentiles were always part of the plan. So if we begin to understand that God is faithful when we understand, so not all Israel is Israel, he's saying because you're looking at Israel as this physical descent through the way that humans look, but God looks at Israel in a different way. He's saying, it's the ones called according to my purpose, the ones who are created, the ones whom I choose, not just physical descendants. It also shows us God's plans aren't always straightforward. I mean, I think we get that sometimes, right? God's plans don't always, we think like, oh, God's plan should go like this, one, two, three, right down the line, and that's exactly how it should work. And if you had come to Abraham and said, here's my, God said to Abraham, here's my plan, you're going to have children, and Abraham had in his mind, okay, I know how that works. I know how children come about, I know how this works, and and it's going to be my firstborn son, and he's going to be the one, and God says, no, not going to work that way. And then it comes to Esau and Jacob. And in fact, if you read through a bunch of the Old Testament, it's not the only time where these whole ideas of the firstborn get flipped around. Because that was kind of a human convention. That was a way of looking at things. And God's saying, I don't always work the way you want to work. I don't always work the way you think I should work. And Paul is telling these stories because he wants the Jewish listeners there to get that idea. They've had in their mind, we're God's chosen people, so we know exactly how this is going to work out. Everything's going to happen through us, and the rest of the world, they can do what they want, but we're God's chosen people. And Paul says, don't you remember your own stories? Your own stories show that God does things in His own way, that He makes the word we use as sovereign. In other words, He makes His own rules. He makes His own choices. It's not up to us. But in it all, he's getting at his mercy. This is verse 14. He says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses. And so you might think, well, wait a minute. If God's running things all along, how can he be judgmental about anything? And he says, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, that quote, again, comes from that same story I just talked about earlier. God's people have received the law. They've been given this special blessing from God. And the first thing they do is they go and worship an idol. They break rule number one on the first day. And God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion. I have mercy. And he says, Paul says this, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Notice the therefore. In other words, it's God's mercy at work. God's choice. We think of God's choice as like, oh, he's random. It it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. God's choice is about him showing mercy. It's not about our wants or our actions. In other words, it's what we call grace. God is doing all these things to show his own mercy. And he picks this up a little farther down in verse 22. He says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What's Paul getting at? 
What Paul is getting at is God is free to do what God wants to do. And he kind of uses the illustration of the potter and the clay. And again, it goes back to that where we have a tendency, just like the people did then, to kind of put God in a box. Well, I know exactly how God works. I've got God. This is how God should work. And what God does is continually surprise people. But one of the biggest surprises that God has is his mercy to people. That he shows grace to people. That as Paul describes it in Romans, he justifies the ungodly. If we go all the way back to the first chapter of Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. For the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is getting at this thing that God justifies the ungodly. As the Jewish people are there and they're considering their own election, their own chosenness, and trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, is God breaking his promises? He's including those Gentiles. Why is he doing that? And God's saying, that's my plan, been my plan all along. And not only that, God can do what he wants to do because he is the one who is sovereign. And one of the things he does, wants to do, is show his mercy. And he gives this great quote from Hosea. This is in verse 25 of Romans. He says, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And so Hosea is this whole parable of God's love for his people. And he's talking at that point about the Israelites. He's talking about them who'd been unfaithful. And he's saying, I will call the people who are not my people, my people. But now he's talking and using that same verse to talk about the Gentiles. And then he talks about a remnant. And he talks about, though, the number of the Israelites be like the sand. This is verse 27. Only the remnant will be saved. And he's making the point that all through the history of Israel, there's always been a problem with unbelief. He wants to remind the people sitting there, it's not as if all through the history of God's people that every single one of them was faithful. Now what happened? All along the way, there were some who strayed. Unbelief isn't a new thing, but God still saves a remnant as a sign of his grace. And he gives the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, because, well, if God hadn't saved a remnant, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what's Sodom and Gomorrah right now? Smoke and ashes. He's making the point that all along God is faithful because that's the question. Well, wait a minute. Because remember, what was the start of the question? The start of the question was, wait a minute. God seems to be going against his promises because not all the Jewish people are believing. There's only a small portion, and I don't know what's going on. Is God going against his promises? And Paul's making the point, no. That's how God has always worked. And God is keeping his promises because there are some who believe. There's a remnant, just as there has always been a remnant. That God shows unexpected mercy and faithfulness to promises and to Israel and to the Gentiles. So one of the challenges for passages like this sometimes is our view, our understanding of the Bible going back to flowers are red and leaves are green. Is we, okay, I, maybe you sometimes, come to the Bible and I think it's got to say something to me. What is the thing? Or we come on Sunday morning, it's like, Pastor, give me, give me something. Give me something to hang on to. 
Give me something I can do on Monday to prove I'm a good follower of Jesus. And then we get this long passage about it's talking to Jewish people 2,000 years ago, and you think, what has this got to do with me? Rule number one, the Bible is primarily not about you. It's about God. And so what Paul is doing here is reminding us about who God is and what God is like. Because while we may not have the same reasons for the questions that Paul's listeners had, we still may have the same questions. Does God keep His promises when, when something seems to be looking different than we think it should look? When maybe not as many people are following Jesus as we think should, when we're being, we might have the question, are God's promises still intact? Has God's Word failed? And we can hear the same message that Paul gave to the church in Rome. Now, God's Word has not failed. God has kept His promises always and always will. Now, it may not look like we want it to look. It may not be a predictable by human standards kind of plan. God sometimes chooses the unlikely. He doesn't follow the same patterns of the world consistently again and again. It wasn't through the firstborn, it was through the secondborn or sometimes the fourthborn. The patterns that humans had developed of saying this is how things work was not the way that God followed. Now, we don't live in a patrilineal society necessarily where everything's traced through the Father, but do we have our own ideas of the way things should work? Do we have our own ideas about the patterns of how God does things? I think we do. Sometimes it comes even from our own human experience. Each one of you came to know Jesus in a particular way. And what I've experienced over the years is oftentimes when someone has come to Jesus in a particular way, and maybe they know some other people who came to Jesus in that same way. So maybe it was through an evangelistic crusade. Maybe it was through a camp. Maybe it was through um, some sort of parachurch ministry. That that becomes the pattern. It's like, well, that's how God does things. If you want to get saved, you need to go to this special weekend, then you need to read this Bible, and you need to sing this song, and you need to do this thing, and it'll all work out. Because that's how it worked for me, and that's how God worked for these other 17 people that I know. And God says, no, I'm going to surprise you. I don't always work that way. I am faithful, and I will show my mercy because that's who I am. But my mercy is surprising. The people I save may not be the people you think should get saved. The way I save them may not be the way you think they should be saved, but I will save them. And so what Paul is inviting us to do is to remember that God's faithfulness. We sang some of those great songs earlier, and they're great is thy faithfulness. And it's his faithfulness to his promises. Faithfulness to his promises as he gave them, not necessarily how we've conceived them in our mind. And one of the promises that he has given 
is that he's going to show mercy. And he's going to do it in surprising ways. He's going to surprise us again and again in the way that he shows mercy. The Jewish people had heard it all along when God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. He says, I will bless you and through you all nations on earth will be blessed. And if we go back and read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, we begin to see there were all kinds of clues along the way, not just clues, but outright statements that God's plan was always to include the Gentiles. But the people of God, the Jewish people, had it set in their minds that they were the chosen people. To which a couple things come to mind. One is, too often, parts of Scripture, particularly Romans 9 through 11, parts of the Gospel of John and others, have been read in a way to cause Christians to look negatively at the Jewish people. And we're not going to go into that, but to simply say this as a statement, anti-Semitism of any kind has no place in the Christian church. Now, we may disagree theologically with Jewish people, but, but any sort of slander, stereotypes have no place not just for Jewish people, but for all, but in particular as we think about Jewish people, because it be, can be tempted to look down on Jewish people and the Jews for all, has no place here as followers of Jesus. The other is that sometimes now we've put ourselves in that same place. As followers of Jesus, we begin to think, well, we're the church, and maybe it, it looks like our particular congregation or our denomination or our particular tradition. And we become, begin to think, well, we're the chosen people. You know, we who are the evangelicals, we're the ones who've got it right, and God has chosen us to be the ones to reform and to change the world. I mean, that's, we come from this tradition of the Reformation back in the 1500s, and what was the idea of the Reformation? The rest of the church is getting it wrong. We're getting it right. That's our tradition. We think we've got it right. And Paul wants to say to us the same thing he said to the Romans, God might surprise you. You think you're the ones who are the big part of the plan right now? Well, maybe right now, but tomorrow it may be somebody else. It may not come about in the way that you think. God is faithful, has been, always will be. And so we celebrate that and we see that even as Paul comes to the end of this section, Romans 9 through 11. And at the end, he says this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.